Imagine if each morning when you wake up, you're smiling and looking forward to your day, knowing you are happy even while you're dealing with grief and loss. The Grief and Happiness Podcasts inspires, comforts, and supports you with each new episode. I'm Emily Zerothret, welcoming you to explore with me your life of endless possibilities. Aloha. I'm so glad you joined us today on our podcast, the Grief and Happiness Podcast. And I have a very special guest today, Dave Roberts, who has had a deep, interesting, beautiful experience in the grieving of his daughter. So we're going to share that with him today and get to know a little bit more about Dave. So Dave, would you like to kind of introduce yourself and Tell us what you do and how you got here. Thank you, Emily. And it's a pleasure to be a guest on your podcast. I've been looking forward to this since it's been scheduled. So thank you. Currently, I'm an adjunct professor of psychology, child life at Utica University in Utica, New York. Prior to that, I had been an addiction counselor working for uh, the state of New York as, as an addictions professional and also as a clinical supervisor. I'm no stranger to loss. I've been dancing with grief since I've been five years old. And the first loss was when my father left my mother to raise me as an only child when I was five years old. I had found out at the age of uh, 14 that he died when I was 11. I had never heard from him after he left. I had experienced a variety of different losses over the years. My maternal grandparents, my mother, you know, the uh, maternal aunt, that had also raised me along with my mother and my grandmother and a variety of different friends due to cancer and other uh, situations, other causes of death. And in 2002, things radically changed for me. And I want to try to give you a very condensed timeline of everything. I completed the requirements for my master's degree in social work uh, from SUNY Albany in Albany, New York on May 19, 2002. My 18-year-old daughter, Janine, gave birth to my first grandchild on May 2nd by the name of Brianna. And Brianna is now currently 21 years old. During her pregnancy, she had injured her foot. Her foot progressively swelled that did not respond to traditional treatments for uh, foot injury. Subsequently, an MRI was done after Brianna was born. Uh, they found an undefined eight centimeter mass in the bottom of her foot. They did a uh, biopsy and it was highly suggestive for a type of cancer called the velar rhabdomyosarcoma, which is a connective muscle tissue cancer. And at the time, Emily was, was very rare and very rarely seen in our area. We went to uh, Dana-Farber Institute in Boston, which is the one of the best pediatric research and sarcoma treatment centers in the U.S. and, and perhaps the world. They diagnosed her with a stage four cancer uh, with complete metastasis in all areas of her body, including the bone and lymph, lymph node involvement. We were told that there was no cure, that you know, unless there, unless there, there was some really some type of a miracle, um, the only hope that they had was basically putting her cancer, doing aggressive chemotherapy, putting her cancer in remission until they could find a cure. After six chemo treatments, there was, her cancer was an 80% remission. 
her cancer eventually resurfaced with a vengeance. And in February of 2003, she opted to stop treatment. Hospice services were contracted with, and she transitioned at home on March 1st, 2003. You know, and, and I was the last one to to witness her final breaths on earth, but I have since come to understand over the years of the work that I've done in grief that I may have been the first one to tra- to transition her into her, her eternal existence. So I that that shift in perspective kind of helped me find peace with, with the, that moment of the last day of her life. All the training in the world, all the education in the world, all the therapeutic background I had in the world didn't even remotely prepare me for burying a child. It's an unnatural event to have to, to, to bury one of your children, as it is for a, a young husband or wife or partner to bury their partner, as it is for a sibling to, to bury one of their, their brothers or sisters, as it is for somebody who has been with their partner for 56 years or a good portion of their life, and suddenly they find themselves without them. And the question is, how am I going to move forward now in a world that's drastically different? I had to ask myself those same questions. The work that I did with grief was as much cognitive, as much rebuilding my assumptive world as anything else. And that was complicated by the fact that in early grief, there was a lot of fatigue. There was a lot of uh, you know disconnectedness for myself. There was a lot of issues I had with sleep. Just the normal physical reactions that we get but that complicated the, the work that I needed to do is rebuilding my assumptive world so I could figure out where I wanted to go without the physical presence of my daughter. So that, Emily, is the last 20 years of my life in a very condensed nutshell. That's a big 20 years to go through. You mentioned a couple of times assumptive life. Can you explain to our viewers what you mean when you say that? Well, prior to Janine's death, I had preconceived notions and beliefs about how the world should operate. I believe that if, you know, things like, you know, if I lived a good life, if I lived an honorable life, I would somehow be protected from tragedy. That somehow life always turns out to be fair. Well, none of that played out. I've learned that life isn't always fair. The quality of life that we have is determined by how we transcend the challenges that are going to be presented to us. And one of the things that I needed to really wrap my head around is that we're not going to get through life without challenge. We're not going to get through life without tragedy. We need to be able to understand that, to to integrate that, and to learn from it. So that was one of the things that I, that, and I also, you know, I was very, you know, I told you prior to coming, prior to recording, I was very rationally based about the world. I, I, if I couldn't, if I couldn't experience it with all of my senses, it didn't exist. And then after Janine's transition, things started happening that I had no scientific explanation for. I would be thinking of her, and all of a sudden I'd see a song on the radio, or a butterfly would come into to view. And there was one time that I was walking, you know, my granddaughter around the block, and there was a butterfly that just kept following me. And in my head, I thought it might have been my daughter's energy that was transformed to that form. But I had trouble really integrating it because it's, wait a minute, I, I live in a rationally based world. I mean, how do I how do I reconcile the spiritual realm without compromising my belief system? 
And that was the other work that I had to do to realize that sometimes science can't explain everything that we see, but yet what we experience that may not have a scientific explanation is real. And I also had to, to realize that I was not immune from tragedy, that if I lost one child, I have two surviving, I have two surviving sons, I could lose another child. And so my safety net was was compromised. So I, I could have used that knowledge in one of two ways. I could have used it to crawl into a hole and not re-engage in living, or I could use the knowledge that essentially things don't remain forever. They don't, things are not forever, and use that knowledge to live the best life that I could every day of my life. And that's what I've chosen to do. And so, but it took a lot of work for me to get to that point where I could, I could rebuild my assumptive world and, and, I needed to do that. If I if I looked at the world the same way after my daughter's death as I did prior to her transition, I wouldn't be I would not be talking with you, Emily. I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing. That's so interesting. Uh, we we can. There's so much that when we pay attention to can really transform our lives and and the way we live them, and. If we don't pay attention to them, we can miss out on things. My husband, Jacques, my first husband who died, was a bioethicist, and his specialty was the ethics of living and dying. So we had lots of deep conversations. We were married for 22 years, and he did, like he brought hospice to the community where we lived. They they didn't have hospice before that, and he was very familiar with all things related to that. Mm-hmm. Yet, as as he was getting sicker and sicker and sicker over the years, he kept going to the doctor and it kept getting worse and had a couple open-heart surgeries and dialysis and all these things. And finally, one day, he said to me, am I going to get better? And I thought, oh, my gosh, why haven't we been talking about this? Because all the time, intellectual as he was, he thought he was going to the doctor to get better, to get cured, mm-hmm. to get well and, and feel normal again. Mm-hmm. And I had to tell him, no, it was so obvious to me. I was surprised. And within two hours, he died. And that was, I, I don't have a lot of regrets in life. But one of them is that we didn't talk about what we needed to have talked about to make the quality of life better so that he wasn't always struggling to do all this stuff just so he'd get better. Mm-hmm. when that wasn't the direction he was going at all. And then when Ron was sick, I, ironically, both Jacques and Ron died from the same thing. They had congestive heart failure, which led to renal failure, which led to dialysis, and which ultimately led to death. Both of them. Both of them were really mm-hmm. sick for the last two years of their lives. With Ron, who I had mentioned was a religious science minister, he would say things to me like, we, we sat outside, I live in Maui, and we'd sit outside lots just because it's so beautiful to sit outside. And he didn't have a lot of energy. So that's something that we could do together all the time. And butterflies would come up and land on him. They'd sit on his shoulder or his head. And they just, they were perfectly comfortable there while we were talking. They never came to me. They always went to him. And one day he was, he was looking down at one and he goes, you know, when you see these butterflies, you'll know that I'm with you. 
And now they, they thought it was interesting with your butterfly story that I'm so glad he told me that because it's it's like a an affirmation for me that that yeah he's he's still with me no matter what my it's not the same form obviously but he's he's still there and we had lots of experiences like that because we did talk about things mm-hmm. and I'm, I'm so glad that that we did and and yet I and I've talked to other individuals that I've done bereavement support with over the years have said the same thing that at you know in the the last chapter the end chapter of their loved one's life they'll say look you'll know it's me when you see a cardinal when you see a butterfly uh, when you see a dragonfly those are common you know common symbols that individuals look for and they connect with the sign from their loved one. Plus, a sign is always a product of what's going on in the present moment as well, too. If you're thinking of our you're thinking of your loved one and you and you see a butterfly or you see something that um they they're gonna say, I'm gonna manifest in this form so you know it's me, then you know it's a sign. You know that they have they have connected with you. And that's the way we transform the relationship. We continue the bond knowing that they can continue to exist in spirit. And I never totally understood that. And, you know, I, I have to give give credit to one person in particular. There have been many along the way that have helped me in, in the early stages of grief. But seven years after, um, after Janine transitioned, I met an interfaith minister from Long Island by the name of Patty Farino through pure serendipity. And one thing led to another. I ended up. We ended up in Long Island for an event that she was she was volunteering for. One thing led to another, and I'm and I'm in her living room, and she's facilitating a spiritually transformative experience that convinced me that we do truly go on, that our consciousness survives, and it was like that for the entire weekend. It it not only transformed me, but it picked my intellectual curiosity because we had subsequent marathon conversations and she kept saying, here, I want you to take a look at this and this from Native American, Native American teachings of, of, of animals and nature. I want you to take a look at Jamie Sam's teachings. I want you to take a look at Ted Andrew. She would plant seeds and my intellectual curiosity, which was born from my scientific background, took over and I said, how can this, and I would get excited. I'd call her and say, wow, this, I, I'm seeing it's, it's opening up so many different possibilities for me. And once you commit, and she has taught me this, to walk in awareness, and it just opens up a whole new multidimensional universe and realizes that one, we're not alone, that maybe the question is, do we ever truly die or do we just go on in, a, in another form of existence? And are we capable of connecting to our loved ones in other dimensions. And we are. We can do that if we are open to it and if we we have accepted the fact that the relationship now is is, is it can be maintained, but albeit in different form. Now, does that mean that you don't have yearnings for their physical presence? Absolutely not. I, because there are days that I want my daughter physically present. But I realize that I can't yearn for something that I can't have. But the yearning there is nevertheless. And that's part of the spiritual experience or as a part of the human experience that we go through. So even though we may be more spiritually aware, we may see ourselves as spiritual beings living a human experience. It's still that human experience that 
that will inform us and that that reminds us that, yeah, our loved ones are not here, but yet experiencing that type of yearning is it, we can also learn from that and we can transcend it. So I've learned to in 20, just accept everything that's part of the ongoing grief journey, moments of happiness, moments of sadness, moments of anger, moments of yearning. I've learned to accept it all because it comprises, I tell people, a very beautiful mosaic that I, I that comprises the path that I now walk after grief. Every emotion that I've experienced has something to teach me about, has something to inform me about. That's so beautiful. You explained it so beautifully. I, I just had the opportunity to do something that um, I hadn't ever thought about doing before. On, on Maui, we have an organization here called Doorway into Light. And it was co-founded by Ram Das. I don't know if you know who Ram Das. Yeah, I sure do. Um, it, interestingly, Ram Das is how how can I how can I help? Is one of the books I use as a resource. Oh, cool! <laughs> for a general psychology class that I teach at at also at Pratt Munson School of Art in Utica, New York. And Ram Das is one of Patty's favorite teachers. And she also introduced me to his work as part of her spiritual mentorship with me. Oh, that's so wonderful. I just, I keep finding connections like that whenever I mention his name. And he was, he was still alive here on, on Maui when I moved here. And I did get to meet with, meet him and hear him talk, even though he was in a wheelchair and it was, talking was not easy for him, but boy, he smiled through the whole thing. And he was, his presence was just amazing and this organization that that he co-founded with with a man named Bodhi B and they did they started death doula training training here on the island and he for as long as he was alive he was he was always there at the death doula training and I thought with all the other things that I'm doing I don't need one more thing to get training in but <laughs> Bodhi uh, asked me this year to come as a, as a VIP guest with, you know, no obligations or anything. He just wanted me to be able to, to participate in it. And oh, my goodness, I've never been in a room where there were about 80 people there. And everybody was kind. Everybody was smiling. I've never seen a more sincere group of people in the world uh, all, all gathered together for the whole week. There was nothing negative. It, it just, it was like magical. And it was at a beautiful place. And uh, one to give you an example, I have an injured foot. I'm going to have surgery on it again in about a week and not looking forward to it. And it's very uncomfortable. And of course, this place was in a deep grassy place and a beautiful temple that this family had had built that you just it's ocean views every place and crystals and just beautiful amazing place but there were stairs and there were and nothing was flat <laughs> any place there was always something and through the whole thing whenever i had to walk someplace and i was i was carrying bags with like my books in them because they they wanted to to buy my books so i had those and books are, aren't light and somebody would walk up next to me, somebody would take my bag, somebody else would just put the hand on on their shoulder that I was supposed to put my hand there for balance to help me. And it was a different person every time. There was no agreement, go help Emily, you know, it was just somebody would see it and they'd walk up and do it. And 
I met so many people that way. They were all so kind. They didn't have to do that. I was a total stranger to these people. And they just all smiled and helped each other. And I thought, wow, this is this is a wonderful way for the world to be. And, you know, Emily, that's a mic. I, I think Ram Das created a microcosm of the, the world and the universe that we can become where yes. values are love, inclusiveness, tolerance, that it doesn't matter who you love, how you love, what sex you what sex you choose to live at, live at, what race you're from, what culture you're from. It's all about we're part of the human race and we're all part of the human race. We're all connected. And that is something that I was telling my students that I see small pockets of transition to that type of world, even in a world right now that is so polarized on so many levels. But I see pockets of that where and it may not be in my lifetime, but I can see where we're going to have a world that is a macrocosm of the microcosm that Ram Das created. And I tell my students, he, he is one of the most profound, influential, and best spiritual teachers of our time. He's an absolutely amazing person. And when I've, I've lived here on Maui for eight years. We came over here because my husband had lived here for many, many years before I knew him. And when he realized the state of his health, he said this was where he really wanted to be. So though I'd spent my whole life in California, we just sold everything and came over. And the feeling of living here, I, I never was here like a tourist because he, since he'd been a resident here before, like 30 years before, we would constantly be bumping into somebody on the street going, oh, hi, Ron, how are you? I haven't seen you in a long time, you know, all the time. And I always had this, this just feeling of peace and love here on this island that I never felt anyplace else. And, and I, I really think that's one of the reasons Ram Das was here was it's, it feels like that here. And with the recent tragedy that we had here in Maui, I'm I'm so impressed by the way everybody's treating each other. It's well, ever anybody can give somebody a hand. There's nobody saying no to anything. Everybody's finding something that they can actively do to serve other people. Everybody who lives here is is doing that. We we hear comments and stuff from people that aren't really associated with the island, but the people who are the residents of the island, and especially the Native Hawaiians, this whole situation has just been handled with so much love. It's just beautiful. Yeah, and love is, love is the key to, I, I think, bringing people together. Love, compassion. You know, I tell my students, even something small, like smiling at somebody that you may not know, you may not know what kind of day that person is having that they may have been contemplating suicide. And you might have done something just minor as smiling, acknowledging them, letting them know that they have a place in the universe that might have delayed their decision for one more day. You hold a door open for somebody. The next, that person you hold the door for is going to hold the door for the next person coming in. It's those little acts of kindness that can create kind of that trickle-down effect that can create a whole atmosphere of love, particularly during days when one, we're not feeling so lovable or we're not feeling like giving love anywhere else or we we feel that our love won't be reciprocated. Those kind of little acts in and of itself 
can be a turning point. Absolutely. And and what a wonderful world to live in that way. Yeah, yeah and if we can we can commit to that as a rule rather than an exception, this would be just a, a wonderful world to live in. Yes. I'm I'm very excited with the, the work that I'm doing with my book and my podcast and our books and my podcast and my Grief and Happiness Alliance, where we meet online on Zoom to write together and talk about what we write and learn happiness practices. I, I meet people from all over the world that people are attracted to this work. And I just love that at the end of any gathering that we have, everybody's smiling and everybody's doing whatever they can to support each other. And it's like, yes, <laughs> this is as it should be. And I'm, I'm very excited about that. And, you know, I think sadness, people who have experienced the most profound sadness become the most compassionate individuals that you'll run into because they know what it's like to have been, you know, at the depths of despair. And they know what it's like to, to feel profound sadness and yearning. And what what they can do to transform that is help somebody else who's feeling the, the, the same way. And in the process, they or we help ourselves, you know, because we're inspired by, by the response that we get. And we're inspired that we can access a part of ourselves that we never thought possible before our tragic losses. Yeah, wow. I just I'm I so admire how you you have um, had such a, a wonderful kind of transition yourself with the transition of your daughter. The the I've seen people that that can't get over it. Just I I know one person now whose daughter developed cancer when she was pregnant and they didn't do anything because they said, oh, it's just because you're pregnant. We'll worry about it after you have the baby. And it was too late. And that person's not not dealing with it. Years later, she's still, she's trying. She's trying. But it's very, very hard. Uh, particularly when you look at the fact that there was medical error involved um, mm -hmm. in terms of, well, we'll deal with this after, but in the case of my daughter, Janine, her pregnancy complicated or masked the symptoms of her cancer, but also, again, with, I guess, with the hormonal activity that I understand occurs during pregnancy, it just it just helped her cancer spread even, even faster. And with sarcoma is they require early detection. If you don't, and the message that we got at that consult and the message that I had heard that there's no cure for your daughter's cancer. The only hope that we have is to put your daughter's cancer into remission with chemotherapy until we can find a cure. When I saw the tears coming down her face, she was she was expressing what I was already feeling is that she was told that she's going to die. And that's what I heard, too. I heard that I was very soon going to be joining a club that no parent ever wants to be a part of. And I did 10 months after she was diagnosed. Hmm. Well, I, it's hard to put in words how to say anything that, that could help with something like that. But what, what I see is such a, a loving father who's, who's transforming yourself as well as helping so many people. 
by dealing lovingly with what happened. Well, the other group I have to give a shout out to are my students of both Utica University and Pratt. My, I started teaching, you know, right towards the tail end of, of uh, Janine's illness because there was a time during her, her chemo treatment that she was feeling good, that she was responding positively. So I wanted to apply for some, some part-time teaching jobs and Utica University, of which I happened to be alumnus of, called me and offered me a job. When I started teaching in January, that was the time that her cancer remetastasized and I was mm -hmm. under contract and I couldn't just walk out. But that community really rallied behind me. The students rallied behind me. They lifted me up with their love, with their attention. And I owe them a debt of gratitude. And I, I take a look at every student that comes into my class as an extension of my own family. And the work that I do with my students not only is in honor of my daughter, and I love teaching it anyway, but it's also with my daughter. The characteristics that she has that were that that marked her personality, marked her her charisma, had become a part of me. So I tell my students to get a package deal now. You know, you get and there's a lot of young energy that will flow through me. And a lot of times it's hard to determine whether it's me who's trying to defy aging and not not act my age, or whether or not it's my daughter's essence that's that's coming through me. But either or it's it's a great feeling because I know she's always going to be with me in some form. And that's really how I physically integrated my grief was taking the best parts of her and making them the best parts of me. Yes. Oh, that's so beautifully said. I, you know, I had kind of a, not a similar experience, but something that happened with me. I taught uh, writing, upper division writing, a class that you have to take to graduate if you can't pass the test. And I've been teaching it online for years. So when I, I moved to Maui, I had no problem with continuing to teach. And I was asked to teach a summer session, and I had never in all my teaching career, which was a long one, taught a summer session before. But I thought, I think this would be good for me to be doing it, to have have something other than just this total, total focus on Ron and his health situation, because he, he seemed to be doing okay. And the session wasn't that long. And not too long after it started, that's when he started going downhill. And before the session was over, he was on hospice and then he transitioned before it was done. And I didn't want to be telling my students, you know, this is this is what's happening to me. And finally, I got to the point where I said, you need to know I'm doing the best that I can. You'll all get, you know, credit for what you do in class. And if I don't get back to you right away, this is why. All of the students, for some reason, and I, I think that's why I got the class to teach, was that they kind of came together at, in summertime and they, they needed to have this particular class. And they were all from the same Mideastern country and they were all male in a place where women didn't don't traditionally have, aren't considered, I don't know, the, the bright ones. <laughs> I'm not sure exactly how to say that, but... They were incredibly supportive. They checked in on me. They they said such positive things to me through the whole thing. And I thought, I'm so glad I taught this class because it was like every time I got on the computer, it was like angels coming through and saying, you got this. We've got you. And it, it was really a beautiful experience. 
And for me, it was too, because I needed to tell the students what was going on, because mm -hmm. I had to cancel a class. I had to rearrange the syllabus to, you know, to, to just accommodate for the missed materials. I had to tell them what was going on. And they just were, they, their support, their love, their smiles got me through nights where I didn't have the energy to, 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 uh, to teach. And they, I, I drew off of their energy to get me through, through a lot of tough moments. And, and in my death, dying and bereavement class that I teach, I, I tell my students, my, my loss history, I including right from age five, I do a condensed version right up until the most significant loss of my life and life-changing loss of my life with my daughter, Janine. And the reason I do that is I want them to be comfortable talking about a topic that many in Western society still are uncomfortable talking about. They need to see that I'm comfortable disclosing my own history. I need to model that for them for one, for one reason. But the other reason is that they need to know who they're, they're walking with, both personally and professionally. I don't know any professional, Emily, who's ever gotten into this business by choice of working with, with individuals. I didn't wake up and say, I want to work in the field of thanatology or I want to work with death, dying, and bereavement. That never crossed my mind. But it's always a personal tragedy that draws us to this and, and allows us to define meaning through, through, through a different path. And, you know, the other thing, you know, the soul and the, and the flesh has free will. We can choose not to do that. We can choose to reject that and, and stay stuck in the muck of grief. Um, I tell individuals, you know, catastrophic loss, grief takes away a lot, a lot from us and loss takes away a lot from us, but it can never take away our free will. We can, we can choose to do anything that we, we want to do with it, even though the consequences may not be desirable. We can still choose that. That is just so important. That, that's the, the big lesson here, that when the, the people can understand that. So many people think that a loss is the end of their life not just their loved one's life that, that they'll they'll never be happy again they'll they'll never be able to function and it's i think that's part of my big part of my message is yeah you can mm -hmm. yeah i mean in early in early grief i mean it's difficult to function i mean as you mm -hmm. there's definite changes that grief occurred with us physically psychologically cognitively it all it changes. It's a shock to our system, and we need to, you know. And a lot of times in early grief, it's about survival just to get through those moments. But if we keep pushing, if we keep working, if we keep seeking support, if we are open to the fact that we can live a fulfilled life in a different world, eventually we can commit to engaging in a purpose-driven life. And there's no time frame for that. You know, there's no grief is not a linear process. There's no well, we're gonna we're gonna go from the raw pain of grief to acceptance in a year. It's gonna take as long as it takes, but as long as you're pushing towards that goal, everybody's gonna go at their own pace. And as long as there's movement, there's progress, that's all that matters. Well, what a wonderful conversation this has been. I think I could probably talk to you for a long time. <laughs> That uh, it it's uh, same same here same here. Yeah. I could I could talk to you for another hour or two. Yeah, well, maybe we'll have to do this again. Absolutely, I'd be more than open to that.
That would be great. Well, this this was a wonderful conversation, and there's so many really good things that we said here. And I think one of the, the big things is being open. Allow life to happen. Allow yourself to be happy. Find joy. Take care of yourself in the, the process of what your experiences are. So thank you so much for joining me today. For my audience or our audience, I will have links in the show notes so that you can uh, get a hold of Dave and be able to read his book. And I'm, I'm just, this has so much food for thought in this. So I would encourage you to write about what you're thinking about right now after you've listened to this because it, it can help you on your path. So Thanks so much, Dave, for being here. And thanks to everybody for listening. And I hope I'll see you all again next week. So, aloha. Aloha. Thank you, Emily. Do you want more comfort, support, and happiness? Join the Grief and Happiness Alliance. Visit my website at lovingandlivingyourwaythroughgrief.com and read my book, Loving and Living Your Way Through Grief. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast, rate it, review it, and binge on all our episodes on grief and happiness. I can't wait to welcome you back to another episode 